You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, hello everyone and welcome to Second Kings. <laughs> we are on our way. We're, we, today, tonight we enter into uh, Second Kings, chapters 1 through 5. And so after tonight, we have just three more sessions. So we are going to be accelerating through 2 Kings, but that's okay. We can do that. Um, it's, uh, yeah, there's, there's lots that we're going to look at. Uh, but let me begin with prayer, and then we're just going to, uh, to dive into uh, lots of interesting stories tonight. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you recognizing that we are completely dependent upon you. We live, we breathe, we have our being because of you. And Lord, we, we live because you are life. And when we, when we put our faith in you, we are brought from death to life. And we receive the gift of eternal life because of your life, death, and resurrection and ascension. And for the gift of the Holy Spirit, who gives us a foretaste of what is to come. And so we live in faith, and we thank you for your word. You're not a God that plays hide and seek, but you reveal yourself. And so help us to lean in to what you have to say to us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So just as a a reminder, because this was a number of weeks ago, uh, we are making our way through First and Second Kings, and one of the things we need to remember, and I'm hopefully we're, we're, we're catching a bit of this, but we talked earlier on that the Book of Kings is comprised of, of uh, literature in a narrative form with historiographical and didactic intent. You remember those big words, right? Uh, And simply saying that the books are put together very carefully. They're put together very carefully. um, And so there's a lot of intentionality in terms of how the books are written. And the books are written in such a way to communicate um, truth. Um, So there's there's a, a literature side of things. But there's also a historiographical side of things that these are events that take place in history. And so let me just uh, pause just for a moment. Okay, so just just to um, recapture what we're saying, that the Book of Kings is composed of literature. Um, so it's written in a certain way. It is historiographical because it's describing events that really took place. In fact, one of the uh, stories that we're going to be looking at today, there is uh, a an archaeological correlation that supports what was going on in this particular event. Um, It was a discovery that was found in the 19th century that points to an event that we will be looking at that's being described in our passages today. So those are always kind of cool things. But they are, it it has a didactic intent. That means the the book of uh, First and Second Kings is written in such a way to teach us about who God is and what it means to know Him and to be known by Him. And so, how First and Second Kings is structured very, very carefully. And so tonight, what we're going to be doing is we're diving into Second Kings, and um, 
At the beginning of 2 Kings, we come to the end of the prophetic career of Elijah. So we come, we're going to say farewell to Elijah. And we're going to see finally the transfer of power or the transfer of roles from Elijah to who? Elisha, that's right. Um, but we still have a little, a few more encounters with Elijah to go. Uh, at the beginning of 2 Kings, we find two developments. But just before I, Andrea, is everything okay? Is Kenneth? Okay. Yeah, good. Um, the first development is Moab rebels against Israel. And so there's tension between uh, the two nations, and that's gonna, that story's going to show up again. And then we also read about the fate of Ahaziah. And who is Ahaziah? He is the son of Ahab and Jezebel. And the occasion is a meeting with Eli um, for the meeting with Elijah is that Ahaziah, we read, um, falls, <laughs> falls out of his window. <laughs> he fell through the lattice in the upper chamber. So he's fallen out of a window. He's being defenestrated. Huh, there's a great word. No, that means to be thrown out a window. Um, but he has sustained an injury. Now he gets injured. This is the son of Ahab. He gets injured. The first thing he does, the first thing that comes to mind is what? Go, he says. Look at this in verse 2. Go, inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron whether I shall recover from this sickness. So the first thing, the first reaction is to say, go check with Baal, Zabob, to see how this is going to play out. Isn't that interesting? This is the king of Israel. The moment he runs into trouble, he thinks of Baal. Now, I think one of the questions that came up to me when I was looking at that is where do we look when we are sick? Whenever you get hurt, whenever you get sick, where's the first place you look? Okay, well, now we, we know what the right answer is, right? But when we get sick and when we get hurt, usually what, what do we look for first? Yeah, we Google or YouTube or a doctor. Or and there's nothing wrong with looking for a doctor. Don't get me wrong. But it's, it's interesting that our minds go uh, to doctors and to, or, or to things that can fix a problem rather than turning to the author of life, turning to God, and, and even in, in prayer. Um, it was interesting. I was reading an article uh, written by a guy named Stanley Hauerwas. And Hauerwas is a, um, he's a, quite an old theologian from the deep south, and he talked about, um, it was just a reflection on what, has the, what did the church learn from COVID? And Hauerwas says, not a whole lot. Um, but one of, one of the things he said in that, he says, um, one of the things that became very clear is that the high priesthood of a secular nation is its doctors, is a medical system. That is interesting that that, that doctors or anyone who works within the health system were seen as necessary, whereas pastors to come alongside or Christians to come alongside people who may be suffering emotionally or spiritually or whatever were seen as unnecessary. And it's just an interesting comment 
about the, um, the, the priesthood of a secular world is its medical community. And uh, I mean, not again, it's not anything against the medical community. I mean, it was amazing what they did. But it was just, it's interesting that the first thing we think of when we're in a crisis is who's going to fix this problem rather than turning to God. Anyhow, in this story, the Lord intercepts because he's trying to find out from Baal, you know, am I going to die or what's going to happen? The Lord sends his own me messenger. And this results in Elijah intercepting the other messengers. And what, is, what does Elijah say to him? He says, if I had to paraphrase, he says, dude, why did you call Baal? Honestly, you're the king of Israel. Why did you consult Baal? Have things gotten so bad? And the second thing he says, and just so you know, yeah, this, this injury, you're not going to recover. You're going to die. And so the message is passed. Um, and uh, Ahaziah, he finds out that it's Elijah who's passed it on. And, and Ahaziah is all like, Ah, Elijah, my old nemesis, you know. So he actually knows about Elijah, but again, he doesn't call upon the prophet of the Lord. He has no interest in consulting him. And um, what does he do then? This is kind of funny. He does what a lot of the kings try to do, is he tries to capture and control a prophet of the Lord. Right? So look what it says, verse 5. So the messengers returned to the king and said to him, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, it is, be is it because there is no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. And he said to them, Well, what kind of man was he who came to meet you? And told you these things. They answered him, well, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he says, oh, that's Elijah the Tishbite. And, and then the king said to him, sent to him a captain of 50 men. And, and with his 50, he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of a hill. And they said to him, oh, man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, if I'm a man of God, well, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him in the 50. And this happens once, and then it happens twice, right? And it's interesting, when I'm reading this story, a couple things stand out. One is, is just about spiritual legacy. It's interesting how Ahaziah is chip off the old block. He's very similar to his dad and his mom, actually. And this spiritual legacy gets passed on. Secondly, we also see um, how tempting it is to think that we can control God's actions through our actions. The prophetic word is never under our control. In fact, one of the themes tonight that we're going to look at is that the prophetic word is not even under control of the prophets. That God controls the prophetic word. Now, Ahaziah sends the troops of 50 men. They're like, "Guy, yeah, you come with us. And fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And another 50 guys and the captain says, hey, Elijah, come down, come with us. Fire comes down, consumes them. 
Third captain comes on. <clears throat> Excuse me, sir. Uh, <laughs> if, if you're willing, would uh, you please come with us, please, please? And he says, okay, I'll come. But he still gives the same prophecy. <laughs> and Ahaziah dies. Now, on one hand, when Ahaziah dies, this is Ahab's son. And remember all those prophecies we're getting about Ahab's family line? Oh, the dogs are going to lick up your blood and the crows and they're going to pick out your eyes and all these horrible endings of Ahab's. This is kind of a tame ending. He falls out of a window and he dies. And so you're wondering, okay, how is this actually a fulfillment of this prophecy? Well, it turns out Ahaziah does not have a son, it is true, but he had a brother. He has a brother. And the brother's name is Jehoram, another son of Ahab. Maybe he will get the judgment that is due to him. Okay. Once we get to chapter 2, we are about to say farewell to Elijah. Yeah. This chapter addresses the end of the prophetic role of Elijah, the, the prophet who called down fire from heaven will most appropriately be taken up by fire into heaven. Yes. And Elijah will stand in true succession to him as the prophet. So let's look at this together, okay? Everybody doing okay? Yeah, okay. Chapter 2. Verse 1, now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, yeah, I know it. Keep quiet. <laughs> Elijah said to him, Elijah said, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, oh, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Hey, do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, uh, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. And then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. To the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them. And they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elisha Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other until the two of them could go over on dry ground. And when they crossed, Elijah said to Elijah, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elijah says, Well, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, Well, you've asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them into two pieces. And he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. And he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, 
Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had part, when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Okay, so I don't know about you, but there's some puzzling things about this story. What 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 puzzles you? What what kind of stands out that's kind of strange here? Is there anything puzzling in this? They're pretty far apart. But yeah. He's supposed to be taken that day, yet in the course of one day they go to places. They go to, yeah, they go to all these places. But even, you get the sense that he's trying to shake Elisha. Don't, doesn't it come across as like, you stay here, I'm going to go on, and Elisha's like, no, I'm not going. We already know, it's been already revealed, that who's the heir apparent to Elijah is Elisha. We know that. That God has chosen Elisha to be, to, you know, to receive the prophetic voice. So, why is Elijah trying to shake him off? Actually, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I could guess. I could guess. Yeah, why? So, the, Lisa, you asked the question. Yeah, why is Elijah trying to separate himself from Elijah? Now, could it be? Now, um, we're speculating, but we've, we've looked at Elijah for a while now. And we know that Elijah's a mixed bag, right? He's not this perfect prophet. Um, there's times where he disobeyed God. There's times where he's quite sullen. There's you know, where he's kind of petulant or he's kind of even self-centered in some ways. Um, is this a picture, I'm just wondering, is this a picture of Elijah's reluctance to adopt God's plans for the future? Like he did when he was back in the cave. Is he trying to subvert God's plans? Do we find in Elijah, and I wonder this, do we find in Elijah a leader who's reluctant to pass on everything he has to a successor. And instead, you have a successor who's willing to stick with his, his master wherever he goes. And so is it a question of Elijah? You know, you know when a person is um, in authority maybe too long, maybe somebody's being a leader, for a bit too long and everybody knows that they need to kind of step aside and allow you know somebody else to lean in and and they drag their feet and they drag their feet is that sort of what's going on I thought he was trying to help him mature while he is still here maybe yeah maybe maybe it seems kind of strange to get to keep saying maybe he's testing him I don't know you think he's testing him? Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. To see if he's persevering. Okay, that's good. We uh, we actually don't know. We don't know, it's, but it's a very strange, because we, we all know Elisha's the guy. Elisha, you're the guy, but stay here, I'm going to go. 
no, stay here again. And I love every time there's always a prophet. It's like, hey, did you hear that he's supposed to let? He goes, I know, shut up. You know, <laughs> it's an interesting passage. Maybe, except what I get from Elisha is a guy who's willing. In fact, he says, I want to, you know, he asked for a double portion. Basically, the, the image is that of, a, of an eldest son. When, when someone dies, they get a double portion of the, of, of the property. But in this case, there's no property, but double portion of the power. Meaning, you, what that means is like, not that I get twice as much power, but it's, it's I am the heir to you. That's what the, the, the passage is getting at. So I see a real faithfulness in Elisha. But Elijah, I just know because of the past. And if we didn't have those past chapters in the end of First, first Kings, it'd be like, because he kind of seems quite happy when he's the center of attention. And when he finds out that there's other prophets, he kind of, he's just an interesting character. Anyhow, one of the lessons I thought maybe, but it, it all depends on your interpretation, was, you know, is this a, a person who doesn't want to retire? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Anyhow. So they arrive at the Jordan. It's interesting. And so he hits the water and the Jordan, the water parts. What does that remind you of? Yeah, Moses, right? And so in some ways, the, the narrator, remember, this literature, they're playing with themes. So what's, what's the parallel theme, do you think, that's being laid out in this passage? Moses and Joshua, you know, passing on to Joshua, and Elijah to Elisha, maybe. Uh, because remember, Joshua actually crosses the Jordan. In the Jordan parts, right? Yeah, I'm not leaving your side. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a reference to Ruth and Naomi. Oh, that's good. Well, it's interesting because even with the whole. Joshua link, if there's a Joshua link, the names actually is very similar. Uh, Elisha means God saves and Joshua means the Lord saves. Anyhow. So let's see how Elisha does in these, in these uh, big shoes that he has to fill. Okay. Um, first thing that happens, we don't have time to actually read it, but when Elijah goes up, when Elijah goes up into heaven, or if he dies, we're not, the, the text is ambiguous. Um, what do all the prophets want to do? They want to find the body. Remember they say, yeah, should, should we send, they come to Elijah, should we send out search parties to find the body of our master? Because obviously he's been his body must be somewhere. And Elijah goes, no, no, don't bother. And they're like, are you sure? And then he's like, fine. All right, go have a look. <laughs> they came back and said, we can find it. He goes, okay. There. So, I mean, it's kind of a, a strange 
strange thing, but they look around. Um, they don't find him. Now, before we dive into the life of Elisha, let's just look at a couple things. Actually, I'm going to have you guys talk among yourselves. And um, you guys can talk on, online, um, on the chat. But what I'm going to ask you, here's a question. What are some things from Elijah's life that can speak into our own life today with God, our own life with God? What are some things we should emulate and what are the warnings of his life? Right? Let's, let's process a little bit about Elijah. Okay, so I'm going to pause. So what are some things, what are some good things we can learn from Elijah? We had some good ones here. Um, obedience to God, not being afraid to go into danger. What are some good things we can learn from our, from our friend Elijah? Things that we should emulate. Nothing? <laughs> Poor Elijah. Well, it's not bad. I mean, he called down fire at the appropriate times. Well, they, yeah, well, they had it coming. Uh, well, there is a there is a bit of that because he's a prophet of the Lord. So he so he represents the Lord, and so when you have a person who says, "I, through my own force, am going to control." what the mouth of the Lord is going to do. Yeah, I did feel bad for the first two commanders, though, yeah. And, and the 50 guys, because they're just like, hey, man, we're, we're just here doing our job. So, yeah. What's that? They were to arrest him, yeah. Yeah, you can't arrest God, yeah. Okay, what else? Oh, yeah, through his ups and downs, he was ultimately, in the end, faithful to God. Good. Anything else? Yeah. Oh, Elijah, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, it does, it does tell you a lot, yeah. I think one thing I like about Elijah is that you know how he's feeling. Like he's kind of an open book in terms of when he's feeling down, he, 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 he wears how he's feeling on his, like it's, 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 it's very clear how he's feeling. So there's an honesty to Elijah and, is, and there is an honesty in the way he speaks to God, right? In terms of what are some things we should avoid, yeah, there is, a, there is a certain degree, I think, in him of, I think there's a little bit of disobedience when he's sullen and dis disappointed. Um, he seems to be okay when things are going well for him, but he struggles with, with faith when things don't go well, which sounds extremely familiar to me. In my own life, when he was in, at the center of attention, he seemed to be quite happy. But when he wasn't at the center of attention, or perhaps when he's having to pass on his mantle, 
he, he seemed to struggle a little bit. Anyhow, he's an interesting, in the New Testament, as you were saying, Maxine, that um, the legacy of Elijah lives on in the transfiguration. We find Elijah and Moses. The point, though, is that Jesus is greater than both of them, of the, of the law and the prophets. Um, many incidents in Jesus' life um, reflect some of the things of Elijah. But one guy is um, actually confused that people think he's Elijah. Who's that? They actually ask him, are you, are you Elijah? Who's that? John the Baptist, yeah. So I think we can see from Elijah, we can learn about a life of service, what it looks like, what it doesn't look like, the need for humility in our life with Jesus, and a willingness to be part of God's plan rather than being the plan. Um, I think that's really important. There's a book. Have, has any of you, have, have any of you ever read the novel, The Book of Sorrows, by Walter Wongren Jr.? No? Has anybody ever heard of the book, The Book of the Dun Cow? Yeah, nobody's ever heard of these books. Okay, so it's Walter Wongren Jr. He's one of my favorite writers. He just passed away last year. Friends of Eugene Peterson, uh, part of a, a literary group. Um, oh, Gene, yeah, of course you've heard of it. <laughs> yeah. um, so, Book of Sorrows is a sequel. So it all takes place with, with it's kind of like Animal Farm. There's animals. The main character is a rooster, okay? Um, but the Book of Sorrows, you actually need to have a box of Kleenexes with you. It's aptly named the Book of Sorrows. It's just relentless. It is, it is relentless. The story is just so overwhelming. But one of the themes of the story is the danger that happens when a pastor or a leader, a religious leader, or like a Christian leader, when they equate their agenda with God's, when they conflate the two, that this is what God is calling us to do, me and God. This, God has revealed this to me and this is my agenda. And insofar as it's my agenda, it's also God's agenda. And Peterson, when I, I took a course with Eugene Peterson, and, and he, he assigned those books, he says that's the danger of every pastor, is where we begin to equate what God is doing with what we are doing. And where we equate our agenda, what we think the church ought to do, with this is also what God wants to do. And we're that clear, and we actually manipulate the people to follow this vision that God has given us on the mountaintop. Now, we need to implement it. And, and he lays out just how dangerous that way of thinking is, that it could destroy a church. And so it's a really interesting um, novel. It's, it's a powerful novel, but I was reminded of it this week when I was reading about Elijah, because I could see that that might be one of the issues in Elijah's life. So, okay, back to the story. We now know Elisha is the man. He's the prophet who can bless and he can curse in the Lord's name. And we see this played out in two stories. The first story is that there's bad water in Jericho. Again, here's a, the, the Joshua influence. Because where's the Joshua? The first thing he has to deal with is Jericho, right? So the first thing is, is, is Jericho. There's bad water that affects the land. And 
Elisha has to deal with it. So he takes salt, he throws it in the water, and the Lord brings blessing and healing to the water and thus to the land. So that's a pretty good story, right? The second story is a very important warning to anyone who makes fun of us servants who are going bald. Okay, so I hope you pay attention to this next story. <laughs> Sorry, it wasn't funny for the poor kids. But anyhow, you know the story. Elisha's you know, going through and some kids see him and they go, Hey, Baldy! Hey, Baldy! And was it 42 kids are killed by two bears? Speaking of bears, yeah. <laughs> so I know these poor kids, I shouldn't. So, yeah. Is that how many there were? Oh, okay, yeah. Oh, and tore 42 of the boys. The other ones ran for the hills, right? Right. So, yeah, that's... Uh, it is perplexing. And it's a story that seems somewhat harsh. But a clue to the story, to make sense of this, the clue is where does this take place? Does it say? On the way to Bethel, right? On the way to Bethel. Now remember, Bethel has become the center of idolatry. It's the center of Israel's apostasy and worship of false gods. And so what you have is you have people in the land who are behaving so disrespectfully to a prophet of the Lord. And remember, what you say to the prophet of the Lord, you're saying to the Lord. And so they're speaking scornfully and disrespectfully to the prophet and to, in, by extension, to God. And so to treat a prophet with dis disrespect is to treat God with disrespect. And that's always a dangerous thing to do. Turns out God is not a tame lion. You can't mess with him, right? And then our chapter ends with Elisha traveling to, it's interesting, to Mount Carmel. The very place where Elijah experienced such a great victory over the priests of Baal. Okay? And so, in just a few verses, Elisha has established himself as the true heir to the ministry of Elijah. Any, uh, any comments or questions? Yeah, I'm glad you said that, Kevin. Yeah, there's only one hero in the Bible, and that's God. We have to remember that, because sometimes we make Elijah or Elisha and those guys as heroes, but they're not, really. Okay, we're going to get to chapter 3. And chapter 3 is, again, a, a very interesting story. Um, now, I want you to pay attention to this. And I want you to see if, if you can hear an, an echo, if the narrator is, is giving you an echo of Scripture, okay? Um, chapter 3, we're introduced to Jehoram, the son of Ahab. And one of the things we first discover when we look at Jehoram is that he's the son of Ahab, and what do you expect? You expect, I expect to read, and Jehoram did even more wickedly than Ahab because he's the son of Ahab and Jezebel, of course. 
But what do you get? Is that what you get? What, what does it say? He's not so bad. Like, he's still pretty bad. <laughs> but he at least gets rid of, from the temple in the north, Baal worship. You notice that? And whenever it's referring to Joram, there's no reference to Baal worship. He, he gets rid of that from the temple. Apparently it's still going on in the land, but he doesn't worship Baal, and he removes the, the worship of Baal from, from the um, temple. Now, one of the things that I, I just want to pause here for a second, because I think this is so interesting. Because a lot of people will look at the Bible especially the Old Testament, and say, well, these are nice stories, but, you know, you can't really look at them as history. In fact, in most scholarship, people say, oh, no, they're just stories. There's, not, they, there's no correlation to history, but there's actually quite a bit of correlation to archaeology. But also, when you read it, there's these little details that wouldn't make sense if you're just telling a story. Like, why would they say, because they're describing how bad Ahab was, and Jezebel was, why would you just suddenly have the son and just say, and he wasn't quite as bad? Like, it just doesn't make sense if you're making this up. If you're making up cardboard cutouts, it'd be like, he's bad, his son is worse, and the son is even worse. That's just how it works. But you get these little nuances in the text, which I think gives the text that ring of authenticity, that this is actually a reflection of history. It's just a little geeky detail, but I, those geeky details add up, and I think actually point to the historicity of, 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 of the text. Um, and so, here we go. So, we have this guy. We're a little bit surprised. But let's look at verse 4. Now, what, as I read this, I want you to tell me what you hear, if you can hear a parallel. Um, why would children be walking alone? Yeah, that's why they need to have their parents with them. Yeah. Uh, okay, verse 4. Now, Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and wool of 100,000 lambs. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. That's what often happens in history. There's a Chinese proverb that the cloth tears best at the seam. Whenever there's a change, that's when you, you, can, you can bring about change. So the King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all of Israel. And he went and he sent word to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are. My people are your people. My horses are your horses. And then he said, by which way shall we march? And Jehoram says, by the way of the wilderness of Edom. Okay? So, do you hear an echo of scripture? Do you hear an echo of another story in Kings, for example? You guys hear anything? Did, have we come across a king of Israel and, a, and the king of Judah before? We, we have, right? We've had a similar story. I think we looked at it last week. So we had Ahab and still the same king, Jehoshaphat. And they're going to go into battle. And what does Jehoshaphat say? 
I know it was a whole week ago, but he, he, yeah, he says, first he says, all right, before we go, we need to check on the prophet. Is there a prophet of the Lord in the house who could tell us we need to inquire of the Lord what we should do? Now, it's interesting. Here you have a, a parallel situation. And you have to remember that this is intention. I believe it's intentional by the narrator. They create the parallel situation, but they make their point by leaving something out. Because what's left out in the story? What's that? They didn't call upon the prophet. They didn't. Jehoshaphat, who was quite pious last week, he was like, well, we should check, you know, check on the word of the Lord, you know. And even when they heard everybody say, yeah, go up and fight. And he's like, ah, is there anybody who might, you know, <laughs> you know, say something different, right? He, he's, 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 he's concerned to be careful. Here, Joram says, we should go and we need to attack Moab. He goes, yeah, my men are your men. My horses, your horses. Let's go. And the only question he has is, which way should we go? How should we travel, right? And so they, this is the way they're going to travel. Now I'm going to see if I can share my screen. Look at this. I'm being all like Marty here. Let's see. Um, except it's not going to work. Hang on. Oh, yeah, there it goes. Share. And hang on. that where's that where is it oh there it is i have a map here can you guys see that can you guys online see that give me a thumbs up or just shout out yes because i can't see everybody can you hear it yeah 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 okay good okay so this is how they're gonna go there's different ways they could go they could go this way but they decide to go this way. Now, to go this way, they have to go through Edom. And they also have to go through very dry land to get up to Moab. So the plan is, is to go south. That's why you get the kingdom of Judah on board. Go through Edom and Moab. And that is why when you're reading it, you'll notice that there's not two kings, but there are three kings. And the king of Edom, who just happens to go along, most likely is like, because Edom has been conquered by uh, Judah at this point. And so it's most likely like, he's like a commander who's also going with him. Anyhow, all three of them are going to go on this, on this battle. And um, as they go, and they're wandering in the desert, before you know it, there's no food, there's no water. And all of a sudden, people are like, uh, turns out, turns out the Lord may be handing us over to our enemies, to the Moabites. And, and then Jehoshaphat, now hang on, hang on. I seem to remember last time we were in a battle, we consulted a prophet. Is there a prophet in the land? Is there a prophet somewhere? Um, so you look at verse 13. Elisha, so they, fight, they call upon Elisha, and Elisha says to the king of Israel, he goes, what do you want with me? Why don't you consult your own gods? This is kind of like prophetic trash talk. He's just like, you know, just, you know, why don't you go consult the, pro, the gods of your mommy and daddy, basically? 
But he helps, he decides to help only because of Jehoshaphat. And so he offers a prophecy uh, that deals with the lack of water and the enemy. And water comes on the scene, right? So they have enough water, they have enough food. And then it, there's something really strange that takes place. A battle takes place. The Moabites, they get confused. They think that, you know, that, they're, they, that the kings are fighting among themselves and the armies are fighting among themselves. The Moabites, ah, let's get them while they're down. Turns out it was just the trick of the sun and the army's like, hey, let's get the Moabites. And so you think God is handing over the Moabites to Israel and to Judah. And then something really weird happens. What happens? It's very strange. The king, the king, just when Israel's on the cusp of total victory, the leader of Moab takes his eldest son and sacrifices him to their god, Kamosh. And then everybody sees this among the Moabites going, and we're, it, it, see, the text is a little bit ambiguous, but it seems as if the army is like, whoa, that's pretty intense. We need to get the Israelites. And so the anger of the Moabites fell upon the Israelites, and the Israelites were actually driven away. And so it's a strange story. Did Elijah speak falsely? Or was he kind of like Micaiah where he gave us the prophecy that maybe just what they wanted to hear? Or maybe it's the fact that that what Elisha prophesied, he thought was that what he was saying was the whole truth, that Israel and Judah would defeat Moab. But in reality... The truth is, is that Israel and Judah was not going, they were not going to defeat Moab. It's, it's just very strange. But I like what Ian Proven says. He says, a central lesson of this whole chapter is this. Prophets do not control the prophetic word. It is something that's given to them by God. And their channels by, through which it passes. And sometimes... A true prophet prophesies, but is still unaware of the full implications of the prophecy. Sometimes a prophet speaks a true prophecy, even though they don't realize it. It's, it's a strange story, but the point is, is that God's word, God's, God's providence is not limited by what a prophet says or what he doesn't say. But I just find that whole story a bit perplexing. Like, I don't know why... The battle ended up the way it ended up. Do you guys got any thoughts on that? There, it's, it is there. In First and Second Kings, there's a lot of stories that you just kind of scratch your head, going, "Yeah, I'm not really sure what to make of that." Well, think about that. If you can think of anything, let me know. But it, I find it a very perplexing story. The next thing we're going to look at is we're going to look at Elisha's miracles. Okay? And this is where we're going to see Elisha really stepping into the shoes of Elijah. And these are some stories that you all know. 
Chapter 4. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord? But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? And she, Tell me, what do you have in your house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. And he says, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, not too few, and then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and your sons, and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him, shut the door behind herself and her sons, and she poured, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing, and she came and told the man of God, and he says, Go, sell the oil, pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Right? So it's a fairly well-known story. Similar story to the story of Elijah. Like There's some similarities to it. But one of the things to notice in this, and this is what stood out to me this week when I was preparing this, One of the things we're discovering is that in Israel, when you have a land that is worshiping idols, what the Bible teaches is that you become what you worship. And idols are dead. And when you are worshiping things that are dead, you die. And not only will you die, but your land will die. And everything in, in, your, in, in your society will begin to die. And you see this in this chapter. You see um, there's death, there's destruction, and slavery. Yahweh had given the people a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It was supposed to be fruitful, and it was fruitful at a time. But idols make the land deadly. And here we find death and we find injustice right these creditors are acting unjustly they're going to take the orphans and and and, and, and enslave them whereas laws in the land were designed to protect the orphans and the widows now it's interesting here's a woman it's kind of interesting her husband's a prophet and it's it's interesting you get a little insight because her husband is a prophet and yet this prophet, he's married, he has a household, he has kids. And so, like, what is this prophet, what does he do? Does he go to the office? Like, is it a nine-to-five job? Or how does, but he's married, he's got kids, and he's a prophet, right? But his, when he dies, there's actually laws in place that are supposed to protect orphans. And it's supposed to protect widows. And the other thing is that if you're a widow and, and, and you're facing injustice, where, where are you supposed to go? to get help. We saw this in 1 Kings. Where do you go? Well, you actually, if you want justice, you go to the king. Right? Remember Solomon and the two prostitutes and the one child that had died? You go to the king and the king executes justice. But the land has gotten so bad that nobody even goes to the king. Because you know the kind of king he is. He's the kind of king that steals a vineyard from one of his own people and then arranges for the person who owned the vineyard to be killed. That's the kind of family that this king is from. So you're not going to go to the king. He's not going to give you injustice because part of idolatry is the whole land is dying. 
And so the only person that's left is a prophet. And so you go to a prophet. And so that's what he does. And, but the whole land, the whole land is, is full of death. Now, I know this is, might be a loaded question, but I'm going to have you guys talk about it just for a few minutes. In what ways is there a culture of death in our culture that is connected to our idols? Well, that's a smoking good question, isn't it? It's a loaded question, but I think it's a really important. Because if, if you become what you worship and if idols are dead, in what ways are we dying in Canada through idolatry? Think about idolatry, what, what that could look like in our culture. The idol of consumerism. Or the idol of, of prosperity. Very good, yeah. So, I'll give you a few minutes to talk about that. That'll be such a fun question. Okay, let's, let's gather in. I mean, that, that's a subject that we could probably talk about for the next half hour. Um, and I know it's, it's a bit short. Um, let, let me tell you some of the things that uh, my cyber friends were talking about. Uh, we're talking about... Um, uh, we're talking about indebtedness, this idea that, um, I, that life owes me everything, and so even if I go into debt, that that's okay because I deserve or I'm entitled to have this kind of thing or this, this in my life. Um, yeah, yeah, the, the cult of the credit card. Um, this, I, the idol of I can fix things on my own. I don't need anyone's help. Um, we could, uh, the idol of personal truth and self-determination. What do you guys got? What are some thoughts? So an ego would be a, yeah. So the, the, yeah. So the idol of self, of Mr. Or is it, yeah, Mr. Self, yeah. That's good. And I, yeah, that's good. The other one uh, somebody pointed out is, um, is usefulness, uh, that we live in a forever young culture where, you know, only things that are young are, are, are seen as, as having value. Um, we also talked about, I mean, there's this phenomenon called um, where, where people will have um, surgery in order to look like their Instagram picture. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's to conform yourself to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or whatever it happens to look like. But I think it's interesting because in, in, the, um, in the text, you have idolatry in the land, and you have death, you have injustice, um, you have tragedy. Later on, you have, you have um, people eating, and the herbs that they eat are poisonous, and it almost kills everyone. So, so the land is poisonous. And I always think about, what's the uh, passage in, um, is it Second uh, Chronicles 7.14? If my people, who are known by my name, should humbly pray, turn away from all their wicked ways, then I will hear them. 
and I'll heal the land. And so the picture of that, people turning back to God, that, that when, when we turn to God, when we allow God to be at the center of our lives, that there's actually healing in the church, but the healing in the church can actually bring healing to the land. And one of the things that uh, I ended up studying quite a bit was uh, the, the history of revivals. And that God is in the business of reviving his church, but not just the church, but a revival in the church leads to an awakening within the land. And there's uh, stories throughout history where you get people, um, you know, begins in a church, but before you know it, um, you know, entire, you know, pubs and taverns and all sorts of things are being shut down because people just aren't, aren't, aren't getting hammered every night. And it actually begins to bring healing to the land. But I was thinking about in this in, in these passages that we're looking at in chapter four, you get story after story of death, but also then of life. And so Eli- Elisha, um, there's a story of the, the w- woman where she says, um, she says, you know what, it's good having a prophet come around. And so let's set aside a room in our house. And anytime Elisha's in town, you know, this is your Airbnb, no charge, right? You can just, you can just stay here, right? And Elijah's like, wow, hey, thank you. Is there anything that you need? And she goes, well, since you mentioned it, we, we, we we're getting old and we've never had children, right? Uh, it's a story that you come across a few times in Scripture. Where else do you find a couple who are getting old and they can't have children? Yeah, Abraham and Sarah. Who else? Yeah, Elizabeth, uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah, Manoah and his wife, uh, Elkanah and Hannah. So there's, there's a number of stories. And it's interesting because whenever a child is born, usually a child is miraculously born. But if you look at their life, it's always difficult. <laughs> like you, John the Baptist, his life was then Samson. He had a difficult life. Uh, Isaac, his life was no picnic. And um, Samuel had his, own, uh, had his own challenges. And so here you have this young man who's, who's born. And, and it's great, except one day he's out, with, out in the fields, with his, I think he's with his dad, and he goes, ah, oh, my head! And he comes, he's brought back to his mom, he's lying on his mom's lap, and he dies. And so how is she going to respond well, she take, it's interesting. She takes her son, she lays him on the bed, and sets off to find Elisha. And, but again, some peculiar things in the passage, because her husband says, where are you going? She goes, it's fine. She goes, all, all, all is well. Don't worry, all, all, all is okay. And she travels to Mount Carmel, and she finds Elisha. And at first, Elisha's, he's a bit of a bumbling servant, Gehazi, um, she, she sees Elijah and she clings to him and Gehazi saying, hey, let it, you know, hands off the prophet. Um, but then Elisha, then she says to Elisha, she goes, you know what? It wasn't my idea to have a kid in the first place. Like this, the, you, you asked me and now I have a son and now this has happened. And so what you have actually is quite a powerful picture of faith. And so you know the story, Elijah goes back well, at first he says to guys, I'll send my servant with my staff 
and he'll do the trick. And she's like, no, that, I need you to come. And sure enough, Gehazi, he comes, puts this, nothing happens, right? She, he comes, Elisha comes, and it's kind of a weird thing. He kind of places himself on the child, and there's life. And the child's brought back to life. So there's life where there was death. And then there was poison, and he brings health to what was once poisonous. And then where there's scarcity, he brings abundance. This is the work of God in, in, in the world. And, and it's an interesting story. It's, it's like a precursor to the feeding of the 5,000, right? Because you read in, in chapter 4, verse 42, look at, take a look at this. Um, a man came from Baal Shalishesha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in a sack. And Elisha says, give to the men that they may eat. But a servant said, well, how can I set this before a hundred men? So we repeat it. Give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. Interesting, because it, it's a precursor to the story of Jesus, right? But in the story of Jesus, there's a lot more than a hundred. And uh, it's a picture, again, how Jesus is greater than Elijah. Now, the last thing we're going to look at tonight is the healing of Naaman. Now, this, how many of you have heard the story of Naaman or heard a sermon on the story of Naaman? Put up your hand if you have. Really? How many, how many of you have never heard of the story of Naaman before tonight? Oh, interesting. Yeah? Oh, well, that's great. I love it when there's a... It's like... Um, sorry, it's nothing like this, but Bruce, you'll, you'll, you'll like this because... I was, uh, I was driving home our pastoral apprentices last week. Uh, we were in Abbotsford for a retreat. And so I got two young pastoral apprentices in the back seat. Um, actually, there's three of them. Yeah, three of them in the car, and I'm driving. And they're saying, well, what music do you have? I said, well, I have a cassette or I have a CD. Um, I said, I'm going to introduce you to some music. So I played The Cars. So the band The Cars is like... They were a good band, you know, late 70s, early 80s stuff. And I was watching them when I was playing the cars. And they're like, this is really good. And I just like, ha. Huh. It's like it's watching someone when they discover something for the first time. Because I grew up with the cars and they'd never heard. Do you guys know who the cars is? You should listen to them. Anyhow. Uh, so, so those of you who have not read the story of Naaman, I kind of feel the same way. Okay. Poor analogy, but okay. Exactly the same thing. <laughs> All right. Well, the story is, is so interesting because it is a story of uh, conversion, monotheism, the power of God's word, humility, covetousness, all these things. Because Naaman is a military leader from Syria. And he's a great leader, except he has one affliction. He is kind of an early onset of leprosy. Skin, some kind of skin disease. Um, and this leprosy is affecting him more and more. But you read, it's an interesting, he's, he's a Syrian commander, and we read that the Lord had given him victories, which is interesting. He's in Syria. 
Um, but we know that God is sovereign over all the nations and all the people at all times. And the journey towards healing begins um, through this small coincidence of an Israelite servant girl who spoke to Naaman's wife, who told her that her husband could be cured through this prophet who lived in Samaria. It's interesting. One commentator puts it this way. She says, she is an Israelite. He is an Aramean, a Syrian. She is a little maiden. He is a great man. She is a captive servant. He is a commander. He has fame in the king's estimation. She has none. For she simply waited upon Naaman's wife. But power and glory will not save Naaman. Humility in the things that are not will save him. So you're getting a picture of God's upside-down kingdom, where the humble are exalted and the exalted are humbled. So Naaman hears about the prophet, and he asks the king, he says, hey, can I go approach this prophet to see if I can get some healing? And the king's like, yes. And take this gold, take this silver, take these, you know, rich clothing, take all this stuff with you in order to pay for the healing. Because you'll probably have to go to the king, and the king will arrange for the prophet, and so you're going to have to probably pay quite a bit. He doesn't realize that Elisha doesn't work for money or for power. He also doesn't realize that the prophet isn't on the payroll of an Israelite king. And it's interesting because the king gets the letter saying, hey, I'm sending down my commander. He's looking for some healing. If you can arrange it with your prophet, that would be great. What does the king do? Well, what am I going to do? I don't, am I God? Uh, can I kill? Can I make alive? How am I going to help a person to get healed of leprosy? He's, I know what he's doing. He's doing this just to pick a fight with me. He wants to go to war with me. Like Immediately the king just panics and makes it all about him. Which, again, is indicative of the state, the spiritual state of the land. Elijah wants to show Naaman that there is a true prophet in the land. But it's funny, when, the, when Naaman arrives, he goes, I have arrived, and you know now the prophet should come out and see me. Elijah doesn't. doesn't even go out. He just sends the servant. He goes, yeah, tell him to go uh, wash in the Jordan River. And uh, seven times, and that should do it. <laughs> Doesn't even go out and see him. I think that's so awesome. What a, what a test of uh, humble faith. Naaman receives it as an insult. He's like, what? Why would I wash in Sylvan Lake when there's Bunsen Lake right here, you know? If you guys know Sylvan Lake, you wouldn't want to go yet. Yeah, yeah, you know. If you had a choice between Bunsen Lake and Sylvan Lake. Yeah, well, a BC Lake, basically, yeah. yeah. So there, he's like, like, why would I do this? The Jordan River, that's gunky. There's no, not a chance. And so his, his servants say, well, this is a servant of the Lord. This is a prophet of the Lord. You may want to listen to what he has to say. And he's like, fine, I'll do it. And he's healed. And it's one of the great Gentile conversions in the Old Testament, alongside Rahab, Ruth, the sailors in the book of Jonah, the Ninevites. And Naaman believes in the Lord. And he says, from now on, I'm going to honor the Lord, and I'm going to honor Yahweh alone. No other God exists. Now, what stands out, here you have a foreigner 
He's not from Israel, saying, Yahweh is the Lord. Meanwhile, you have a king who would rather turn to any other god than God. And I think that's a contrast that's been uh, laid out here. Naaman tries to give Elisha gifts. I mean, he brought all the gold, he brought all this money. He's going, hey, well, I've got to pay you something. Elisha says no. And then Naaman says, well, can I do this? Can I take some dirt from the land? Now, why do you think he took dirt? What's that? Yeah, the God of the land. Remember that how in, in, in some thinking is the idea that, that God, his jurisdiction is connected to the land. So you wonder if there's a bit of a hangover from that. That this idea that if I take dirt from the land, then the power of God will go with me. Right? Anyhow, he takes some of the dirt. Um, and then he, he also asks, he says, um, I'm going to have to ask you for your forgiveness on one thing. I'm going to need God's forgiveness because sometimes, sometimes our king, he's old and he goes into the temple and he bows to our God. Now, I don't believe in this God anymore. But I, I, he actually holds me by my arm and we have to go in there together. So I hope that's okay. I don't worship this God, but I'm doing it for my king because he still does this. And Elisha says, go in peace. That's fine. And uh, I, I shared this the other day because this dilemma, this cultural dilemma, is quite, quite real for a lot of different cultures, especially if you're from a different culture and you become a Christian. So my background is, is, is more in, in China, and I've shared this before, but I remember the challenge in China for a lot of kids when they become Christians is that their parents would be going to a temple and they go to the Buddhist temple and they would pay homage, pay respect to their ancestors, bordering on ancestor worship. And so they kato to, to and, and they remember their ancestors. And so for Christians, the challenge is because they would have to go and they would have to be with their parents or their grandparents and to stand up and to bow before their ancestors. And they're like, can I do that and still be a Christian? And when I used to pastor in another church, in a Chinese church, this was an issue for many of the people within our church. And they would often ask me, what do I do? And so we, I would often say, I remember the story of Naaman, and just say, you know, where are you at in your heart? You are respecting your mom, you're respecting your grandparents, and you're respecting your ancestors. So long as that's what's in your heart, I think you're okay. But you need to be very clear what's going on, right? And so here you have a, a situation. And he's like, you know, can I, can I do that? And he says, yeah. Now, in all this, you get the, the rotten servant, Gehazi. Gehazi's like, dude, you've, he has all this money. He has all this money. So he runs after him and name. It's like, well, what, what's going on? He goes, yeah, it turns, out, it turns out we needed a little bit of money. Some guy's a little bit short. And so if you could spare a little bit, not all of it, but just some, uh, just, just, just a little bit of expenses that we need to cover. And Naaman's like, sure, take, take, take some of this. He goes, that's great, that's great. I'm just going to head back to my prophet, but appreciate it. And he wasted, he goes, and then he nips into his own house, hides it, goes back to Elijah, and Elijah says, where have you been? He goes, I haven't been anywhere. 
because you lie like a cheap rug. That's basically what it says. And uh, it goes from now on, you're going to be covered in, in, in leprosy, right? So it's an interesting twist because as uh, Paul House puts it, he says, one man goes away healed because of his obedience. while the other man, indeed, the one who should have known what matters most, walks away with leprosy. And so here you have another Israelite that made a tragic mistake of choosing a substitute for the Lord. Well, the Gentile convert has discovered what the servant girl has said about the Lord's prophet being true. And so you just get this kind of, this upside down picture because here you have a, a commander from Syria getting it right and a servant of the prophet of the Lord choosing money over obedience. And, and, and so it's just such an upside down and such a, it's such a, um, a condemnation against Israel. Now I think, you know, Jesus draws on a lot of these stories because Jesus, he's talking to the Pharisees and he keeps bringing up stories about where God's favor is on those who are outside of Israel. And it just gets the Pharisees really mad because he keeps saying, you know, if you keep this up, if you keep rejecting me, you're no better than these people that were coming across. So the backdrop to Jesus' teaching is First and Second Kings, is the story of the kings and the story of the prophets. So what are some, uh, what are some lessons that come out of our readings? Well, I think one is the role of the vulnerable in God's economy. I love the fact that yet this young Israelite servant, she has no support. She is in a household, in a land where people are contemptuous of her faith. She's the lowest of the lows, and yet she won't be silent. She says, hey, I know a guy, I know a guy who can bring healing. He is a prophet of the Lord. And I love this fact, because here you have this, this random servant girl who just on the side happens to speak to her mistress, who's married to Naaman, and through this whole process, the commander becomes a follower of Yahweh. And his whole trajectory of his life has changed. Just because of what seemed to be a coincidence. And I, I always remember this because I remember by coincidence when I was in Shanghai. And I was going back to Hong Kong for Spring Festival. And just before I was going back to Hong Kong for Spring Festival, I heard, I forget how I heard it, but I heard an old buddy of mine who I knew four years earlier was going to be in Hong Kong right at the time I was going to be there. I hadn't seen him for four years. I'm like, wow. I wrote him a letter. I said, man, are you around? He goes, yeah, I'm going to be there when you're going to be there. I said, well, let's grab coffee. So we grabbed coffee at the Sheraton Hotel on Nathan Road in Hong Kong. We sat down and he asked me how I was doing and he talked to me about Jesus and I wasn't interested but we happened to head we just happened to be heading back to the airport at the same time he's going to Vietnam I was going back to Shanghai and he gave me a copy of a book mere Christianity I read that book on the plane and I gave my life to Jesus two days later so and 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 I just remember it was just by chance that I heard rumor that he was going to be in Hong Kong when I was going to be there and I almost thought, ah, should I, ah, I'll, I'll call him up or I'll, I'll connect with him. So these little details of our lives, these little tiny details of obedience can change the trajectory of a person's life. 
And we really, and so you think about the details when you go to a coffee shop and you talk to somebody. You have no idea what your words can do. And it can radically change the direction of a person's life. And here you have this little Israelite servant saying, hey, I happen to know a guy. It would have been just as easy for her to keep quiet. But she says this. So I, I think that's such a powerful story. Second thing is cross-cultural conversions can be, messes, can be messy. Um, think about your own life. What are some of the biggest challenges you faced when you gave your life to Jesus? Where there are some things that you had to jettison that were very, very difficult to do. And the third thing is you and your land become what you worship. <laughs> when you worship that which is dead, you become dead yourself. But when we worship the author of life, we come alive. And I think that's on display in this whole passage in, in all the chapters that we looked at tonight. So, next week, oh, you have lots of reading. But it's, it's pretty repetitive reading. There's lots of, and this guy lived and died and he was bad. This guy was bad, he died. There's a lot of that. But we're going to carry on with our, our, um, with our reading. And so next week we have to read... 2 Kings chapter 6 to 17. So that's a big, big chunk. Um, so can we get through all that? No problem. We can do that. And uh, <laughs> Lisa, no, you can do it. You're, you're way off in the island, so you got nothing to do over there. You got lots of time. <laughs> all right, so let me uh, conclude our time in prayer. And... Um, and we'll go from here. Lord, we thank you for how you work through the details of our life. Your, your love is so infinite that you love us finitely. And you love us and you work in the details, the personal details of our life. And that is remarkable. But you're so big that you can love us in a very small, distinct way, precise way. So help us to be attentive to what you are doing in and around us. And may we be like that servant girl and may we speak up. Uh, when we want to shirk back and keep quiet, may we speak up and speak truthfully and gracefully into the lives of those you bring across our path. Knowing that you may be doing a work that uh, we cannot see, but you've been doing long before we came on the scene and long after we leave the scene. So help us to be salt and light wherever you place us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.